um, I'm excited about this, uh, Ezra 5 and 6. I know this is kind of one of these books of the Bible that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, I think that's a shame, actually, because there's just a ton in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to work through both of these books over the course of um, the winter, rest of winter into, into fall here. Uh, into fall, sorry, into spring. <laughs> I guess I'm way ahead of all the rest of us. Uh, into the spring here, we'll, we'll get into uh, both of these books. But we're right in the middle of Ezra, uh, right at the halfway point here in five and six. There's only 10 chapters in this book. So here's what I, here's what I think is really cool about this. The, we, we believe, we're very convicted at Springbrook Church that the whole Bible uh, centers around Jesus Christ, that, that the work of Christ uh, is the center of the Bible. That is what this whole thing is about. It, there's lots of stories in the Bible. There's lots of individual things and histories and teachings, uh, but all of it is meant to point us to the work of Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross and resurrection. Um, we say this a lot here, that, that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus uh, and, the Old, and the New Testament points back at Jesus. And so in that way, he sits right in the middle. Uh, Jesus himself talks about this with his disciples after he's raised from the dead. In Luke uh, 24, he's walking with a couple of his disciples and they are talking about what just happened and they didn't know. They, they were kind of blinded from the fact that this was Jesus talking to them. And Jesus uh, eventually opens their eyes to this reality that this is Christ risen from the dead. And then he begins to tell them in, through all the scriptures, starting with Moses, meaning the first five books of the Bible, uh, all the way through the prophets, uh, the things that concern himself. And that would have been an amazing uh, sermon to listen to, right? We, didn't, we don't get the content of that message of what he said as he walked with his disciples. Um, but he himself says that the Old Testament from Moses all the way through the prophets is about him. And, and we believe that firmly and we, we believe there, there is something for us in every passage of the Bible to point us to him. Um, sometimes it's a little more obscure than others. But what's cool is that in Ezra, right in the heart of this book, right in the center of this, this book of the Bible, we can see a very clear picture of Jesus Christ. It's, it's still a shadow of him. Um, the Old Testament is shadow and Jesus is substance. But the shadow is clearer in, this, in these two chapters than it has been up to this point. Uh, in this book and probably going forward. And so it's just a really neat thing to come right to the middle of Ezra and find Christ in it um, as a kind of a microcosm or so of, of the whole Bible, that he really does sit in the center of it. And so um, as we get into these chapters, we're, we're taking two chapters t- today. So we're not going to be able to look at every verse in this in, in great depth, uh, but we will uh, get, I think, the the bookends. And I think the the front of this section in chapter five, and then the second half of chapter six will be where we spend most of our time uh, this morning. So if you'd look with me at verse one of chapter five, it says, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So here we see a couple more people entering into the story. We see two prophets, uh, Haggai and Zechariah, both of which have books in the Old Testament by their name, to their name, uh, recording the teaching ministry that they had at this time. And, and so, but just to put that into some context, where we left off in chapter four 
is the, the building of the temple, the foundation was laid at the end of chapter three. And then chapter four enters into a season of opposition to that rebuilding. And so the Jews are forced uh, by uh, the, the new king, the king who's in charge after Cyrus, uh, to stop building the temple. And, and the people in the land who are living around them uh, bring about intimidation tactics and ultimately uh, threaten them to stop building the temple. So what happens is, is that there's a, there enters a period of time where there's no construction happening on God's house, which is the whole reason why the, the Jews returned to their land after 70 years of exile. It was to rebuild their lives, but more importantly, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God so that they could reinstitute the worship of God properly after 70 years of not being able to do so. And so here, uh, what we're seeing is that as the people have been dealing with opposition, as they've been halting the work, there's been about a season of 16 years where nothing has happened on the temple. No, no construction has been done. And God does something to get the work going again. He sends these prophets to speak on his behalf to the people. He sends Haggai and Zechariah into this role to reinvigorate the people who are there to the work. And so uh, that's where they're coming into this story. Their, their books, Haggai and Zechariah, are not the most well-known prophets in the Old Testament either, right? We don't always study them or read them much. Um, they're not like Isaiah or even Ezekiel or Daniel, uh, who are, which are much more common and, and known to us. But uh, Haggai is, is very, very short. It's actually only two chapters. It's about a page and a half in your printed Bible. Uh, you can literally blink and miss it as you're flipping through. And so you have Zephaniah and then Haggai and then Zechariah. So that's not confusing at all. You have these two that have almost the same name like on either side of Haggai. And so uh, Zechariah is a little longer. It's about uh, 14, I think, chapters in there, but, but they're still not real well known. So what are these prophets doing? What are they saying? What is, what is their role here? And the first, the first one we'll get into here is Haggai because his, because his book is so short and it only covers four months of time. Basically, Haggai is four sermons over the course of four months. And it's very simple. His message is not complicated. It is simply get back to work. That's his message. And we can see that just through the first few verses of Haggai chapter one. I'll read, I'll read them. You don't have to turn there. Um, you wouldn't find it anyways if you did, right? Because it's just too short. But Haggai is uh, speaking to Zerubbabel, if you remember that name from prior chapters. Zerubbabel is basically the guy in charge of rebuilding the temple. He's the guy, construction manager, uh, kind of leading the charge here. 16 years, nothing's been done. And so it says this, that the, Lord, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua. Jeshua is how it's spelled in, in Ezra. But Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Here's what God says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, 
You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Um, So in other words, he says, you guys have been selfish for these last 16 years. You're focusing on yourselves. You're worried about your own houses. You're not worried about God's house. Get back to work. It's time. It's time to go. And, and that, that he, he kind of hits at where the people of Israel are in these 16 years of no work being done. They've kind of become apathetic. And they're sort of at a point where they're not really sure if they should continue to build the house. And so God sends the prophet Haggai to speak to them in that and say, quit being selfish, get back to work, do what God has called you to do. And that's basically, that summarizes pretty much the whole thing with Haggai. That's it's not a long book. It's not a long uh, writing of, of prophecy. It's just simply, this is what you're called to do. Let's get it done. Zephaniah is, is a different book, we'll get, but we'll talk about him a little bit more towards the end. So let's just see quickly here uh, with Haggai's prophecy in front of us where this goes. Ezra chapter 5 verse 2 says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Jeshua, or Joshua, depending on how you spell that, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So Haggai's message works, right? It, it reinvigorates the people. God's word speaks to the people's heart. Zerubbabel and Jeshua get back to work. They start to rally the troops again, and they're going to go and do this with the prophets supporting them. But that doesn't mean that opposition doesn't continue, right? Because it does. Uh, verse 3 through 5 records how a governor, a Gentile governor, Tatani, and uh, uh, Bonanzai or something, I don't know, uh, he's dead, doesn't matter how I pronounce his name. And there's... <laughs> I love getting you every time with that. Uh, all right. And so however you pronounce his name and their associates, they came and they spoke to Zerubbabel and, and so on. And they say, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure? They also ask them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? So now there's confrontation again. These, these guys who are in charge of the Gentile people around them are coming to uh, Zerubbabel and uh, to Jeshua and are saying, who gave you permission to do this? You can't do this. And so they ask for names, uh, which is interesting, and they, they don't get the names. Um, it says that the, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop. Uh, they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. So here's another king who comes into power. And then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So the Jewish pe- leaders just say, hey, we're not going to stop doing this until you get King Darius to tell us to stop. So Tat and I, we're going to skip kind of quickly over this middle section, but Essentially, Tatnai and these associates of his write a letter to Darius. Uh, very much, it's very repetitive to the letter that was written in chapter 4, which we looked at last week, which basically says, you shouldn't let them do this. It's bad for you. Uh, if they rebuild the city, you're not going to get any uh, tribute from them. Uh, they're, they're just going to be rebellious people. Kind of use the same script as the prior letter written to Artaxerxes. So what happens at the beginning of chapter 6 then The letter is recorded at the end of chapter 5. Chapter 6, Darius gets the letter and looks into it. He starts looking into the issue. 
And he goes back through all of the things uh, from all these years of all these other administrations, and he finds King Cyrus, all the things that King Cyrus had said they could do. Uh, he sees that King Cyrus had given these, these people permission to rebuild the temple, not only per- permission, but also resources to do it. And so Darius goes, oh, okay, well, Cyrus uh, made this agreement. I'm going to hold up my end of the, the deal and let them continue. So he writes a letter uh, back to the people uh, who had written their, their complaint. And he says, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, is, uh, well, we'll start in verse 6. 6 through 12 is, is basically Darius's response. He says, Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, uh, Shethar Banzai and your associates, the governors and uh, who are in the province beyond the river. Here's what he says. Keep away. Let the work of, on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders in the, of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, which is their province. And whatever's needed, bulls, rams, sheep, burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil to the priests at Jerusalem, whatever they require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if any alter, uh, anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. Well, that's, that escalated quickly. Uh, and the house shall be made a dunghill. Okay, cool. Uh, so basically, s- summarizing that, Darius says, leave them alone, let them build. Uh, if, you, if, you all, if you come, you know, and disobe- disobey me, I'm going to kill you and destroy your house. And so... Darius is actually doing a good thing here. Right? And he has no real battle in this. He, he lives in you know, Persia and he doesn't really have any like, actual active reason to be doing this aside from the fact that he's a decent king who sees that there was a deal made by his predecessors and he's going to hold up his end of the, the bargain. So not only does he say to the people living in this province around Israel that you can't prohibit the work, he also says you have to pay for the work. Um, and so that's like adding insult to injury, and I kind of like that. It's, it's funny. Now, ultimately, Darius is not making them pay additional money for the Jews to build the temple. He's just saying, instead of sending me the money you would send uh, as tribute and taxes, send that money to them directly. So it is Darius's money. It's not like he's making them pay above and beyond uh, but he's just saying, hey, whatever revenue you owe me, you send over there and you give them what they need. So he's, he's actually really an admirable guy in this regard. Um, but this once again gets us to a thing that we've seen over and over and over again in this book and beyond this book, that God is in charge of who's in charge. God's in charge of who's in charge. There, there's kings that are oppositional. There are kings that are Uh, in favor of the work, but God puts all of these people in positions of authority for various purposes. And so just as there was a series of kings that were against the work, now God has put another king in place who is for it. 
and, and he's allowing the work to resume and providing the financial means to get it done. Okay, so that's the, the overview of getting the work done. But let's, let's hone in here on verse 13 through the end of chapter six. Because I think the, the heart of this is not all the nuance about the you know, back and forth between the oppositional people and the king. It's really that the temple is gonna get finished. And, he, and there's gonna be some great things that happen here. So verse 13 says, then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Banzanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. So they did everything he ordered because you know when you get threatened with being impaled, uh, you, you tend to do that and that, that works. Um, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Idu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. Notice that by decree of the God of Israel, not, not just by Cyrus and Darius, although they get included in this too, right? And by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So God's in charge of who's in charge. You have all these kings, but they're ultimately under the lordship of the God of Israel. And, and this house, it says in verse 15, was finished on the third day of the month of Adar and the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So all the work of rebuilding the temple is completed over the course of about four years. And they are able to reinstitute their worship. They're, they're according to what Moses had commanded them to do. They appointed priests and Levites in their divisions. They had offered the sacrificial system again. And, and there's great joy in this for them. But then here's the crucial piece. Verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. Now let's not lose sight of the importance of that for a minute because the Passover was the absolute most important thing the Jews would remember. And it still is to this day uh, a, a vital part of Jewish belief and celebration. The Passover is the, the moment of celebration in which God literally passed over them uh, from his judgment and got them out of slavery in Egypt. And he punished the Egyptians very severely, but he didn't punish the Israelites. Why? Because he gave them the, the ability to be passed over, which was to slaughter a lamb and spread its blood along the doorposts. This is back in Exodus, right? And as they did that, that lamb died so that they wouldn't die. That's what the Passover celebrates ultimately, is that God would pass over their sins because this lamb died in their place for their sins. 
And, and now after almost a hundred years as a people, the, the Israelites are able to celebrate the Passover. This is a significant moment. And it says, for all the priests and Levites had purified themselves together and all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel, that is the lamb was, for who, uh, who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God the God of Israel. The the temple is finished. The Passover is celebrated for the first time in about a century. And this is the passage that I think we see Jesus Christ most clearly. The Passover is a shadow of what Christ would ultimately fulfill for us as as he lived as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He does that through his death on the cross. The cross of Christ is the pinnacle, the peak of what the Passover was meant to do. The Passover was a small microcosm of the greater sacrificial lamb of God who would die for us so that the wrath of God would not fall on you and me for our sins, but fell upon Christ. And so that our sins are passed over and we receive joy and life eternal as we trust in Christ, this Passover lamb. The Passover reminds us of God's deliverance from judgment. His wrath is passed over and Jesus Christ is the reason we can stand before God out of judgment. This is what the cross does for us. And this is why as a church, as a Christian body, we celebrate the Passover not just once a year as as a celebration of Uh, like community identity, but we celebrate it each and every time, at least in our church, each and every time we gather and eat and drink in remembrance of Christ. The Christian Passover is the Lord's Supper. The Christian Passover is when we come to gather in worship and we eat bread in remembrance of his body and we drink a cup in remembrance of his blood shed for our sins. Jesus institutes this new Passover with his disciples at their last Passover meal, celebrated together before he dies. And Jesus says, this is uh, my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this, you do so in remembrance of me. This is my blood. This cup is symbolic of my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so that's why the church has, from from the outset of its existence, has celebrated God's removal of, our, of wrath for our sins and have celebrated the death of Christ. Now, I want to get back to this issue of Zechariah for a moment because we, we just sort of ignored Zechariah. He, he plays a big role in this. And we're told specifically uh, at the beginning of chapter 5 and then again in verse 14 of chapter 6, that the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah. And what's amazing about this is that Zechariah's, uh, he's got a longer book. He's got about, I think, 14 or so chapters in Zechariah. But his message 
is incredibly relevant to what Jesus would ultimately do as he went to the cross. And there are four instances in the New Testament, all of which are recorded in the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Four times Zechariah is, is, is quoted. And each time he's quoted, it is, uh, it is pointing to the fulfillment of Zechariah's words as it relates to Christ's uh, passion, as we would call it today, his, the Passion Week of Christ, whether that be his entrance into Jerusalem at the, um, uh, on Palm Sunday or, or his betrayal, arrest, and death. And all of these things come uh, from the writers of the New Testament looking back at Zechariah and going, oh, that's what he was talking about. He was talking about Christ and the final week of his life and the final moments and hours of his life. Zechariah 9.9 is quoted in Matthew 21.5 and in John 12.15. And it simply says this, I'm reading it from Zechariah. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this, this passage, of course, is used in Matthew and John to remind us that Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey was a fulfillment of these words that our king is coming and he brings righteousness and salvation with him. Then Zechariah eleven thirteen is quoted in Matthew 27, 9. This is uh, Zechariah eleven thirteen says, the, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now it sounds like Zechariah is talking about himself there, but the deeper meaning of this, as we read in Matthew 27, 9, is that this is actually preparing for the betrayal of Jesus Christ by one of his own, namely Judas, who betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And then after Jesus is arrested, he goes back into the temple and he throws those 30 pieces of silver into the temple. This, of course, this betrayal of Christ by Judas is used in God's greater plan to save the world through the death of Christ, to get Jesus into the hands of the authorities. Then we see in Zechariah 13, 7, he says this, uh, let me get there here. Uh, He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. This, this is used by Jesus himself as he's telling his disciples that, that he will be arrested, and that they will all flee, and they will run, and they will, they will go and scatter away from him. And he says, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. And that's where Peter, the apostle Peter says, oh, all these bozos are going to do that, but not me. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, actually, by the time the rooster crows, you have denied me three times. So once again, we're seeing Zechariah used as a fulfillment of Christ's arrest and and ultimately his disciples fleeing for their lives. That's quoted in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. And then one last one, back in uh, Zechariah 12, verse 10. 
He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This passage is quoted in John chapter 19 and it is quoted specifically about Christ's crucifixion. 19 verse 37, it says, Jesus' side was pierced by a spear as he died. And it says that these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So it's just incredible to me to see how all these things connect. You have Ezra, who's recording the, the rebuilding of the temple by Zerubbabel and his, his associates, who then get the work done because Haggai steps into the role to speak and get them motivated. All the while, they're hearing the prophecies of Zechariah, which are shadows and, and kind of leading the way for Jesus's ultimate arrest and betrayal and death on the cross as they prepare ultimately to celebrate the Passover, which Jesus is the fulfillment of. It's incredible. And so I think there are two things we need to take from this. And I think that Zechariah, while he prophesies a bunch of times about the death of Christ, his overarching message is actually preparing our hearts for the gospel. While the fulfillment of the Passover is in the, found in the death of Christ, it, and it's celebrated each time we gather here to remember him in his death, um, we have to remember what salvation fundamentally is. And Zechariah helps us with this. Zechariah 4, 6, and 7 says that this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, meaning a flat place, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace. Zechariah's prophecy to Zerubbabel, of course, was telling him that that God's going to remove all the obstacles in the way of them rebuilding the temple. But in a more profound sense, in a greater sense, this prophecy tells us something about our own salvation, that it cannot come through might or through power or through effort, but can only come by the Spirit of God. And God's Spirit brings salvation to us. How? By removing every mountain or obstacle that stands in our way to Jesus. God's grace covers it all, and we shout grace grace. It's all grace. Salvation is through Christ alone and it cannot be accomplished by us. And secondly, Zechariah reminds us of this. In 2 verse 8, he tells us that God sees us, his people, as the apple of his eye. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that it is through the cross of Christ that, that is the only remedy for our pride or our despair. Jesus Christ sends his son to be the Passover lamb. And the cross of Christ demolishes pride and it demolishes despair. 
Spurgeon helps us with this. I'll read a little bit of Charles Spurgeon here for you. It says, he says, the people of God are the object of the dearest purchase that was ever known. They were redeemed, not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Stand at the foot of Calvary. Let the groans of Christ pierce your heart. Behold his head crowned with thorns. Look at his hands and his feet streaming like fountains of blood. Think for a moment of the awful anguish which his spirit suffered, of the unknown pains he bore when he redeemed our souls to God, and you will readily conclude that love so amazing, which could pay so great a price, would not easily loosen its hold on what it has purchased for, it, for itself. Spurgeon concludes with this, we think little of ourselves when we value ourselves at anything less than the price Jesus paid. But we dishonor the Lord who bought us if we think ourselves only fit to live for the flesh. What is Spurgeon getting at there? He says, if we look at ourselves, we're looking at ourselves too little if we look at ourselves not through the price Jesus paid to redeem us, but we look at ourselves too much and too highly if we think that we can just go on living for ourselves. The grace of God saves us from pride, meaning saves us from the belief that we can save ourselves, but it also saves us from despair, believing that we are too far gone and too lost to be saved. It is only the cross of Christ that shows us the depths of love and the depths of neediness. And both of these things meet in Jesus. And so I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you, where you lean and where you're struggling, whether it's in your pride thinking you've got it figured out and you don't need Jesus all that much. Or if you're on the other side and going, I'm, I'm such a despicable human, how can he love me? I don't know where you fall on that spectrum, but whatever it is, the cross of Christ is for you and he meets you where you are and he saves you from your sins, the punishment they deserve, and he saves you from a life of pride or despair. So let's pray together and, and then we'll continue through our worship of Jesus. Uh, God, we, we thank you for this, for the reminder that you have loved us in a way that led you all the way to the cross. And that there is nothing we could do to earn that or deserve that or accomplish that, but it was purely by your grace. Would you help us, Lord, by removing every obstacle, removing everything that stands in our way so that we can get to the cross this morning. We pray for your help and we pray that you would draw us in. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.